The title of this evening's talk is Constructions Taking Over the Mind. The talk is an invitation to take a close look at the stuff, often memories from the past or projections towards the future, we burden our mind with. Stuff that ends up cluttering the mind so much that there's no room left for, for the present or for the, for the real. Most pervasive among all this stuff is that is the material, the stuff, that is meant to define who we are. That is, who we think we are. And what is our mission in life? Or what we see is our, us, our mission in life. Another way of describing this mental takeover is by noticing how often the mind gets preoccupied. Notice that this little word, preoccupied, means previously occupied, means occupied in advance. It highlights in no uncertain terms that a mind so preoccupied has no room left for seeing the new. We're seeing things as they are. So that's the topic of central topic of this talk. What's all that stuff burdening our mind? So, I will examine how this mental, mental takeover takes place. And then, towards the end of the talk, and in the following talks in the next two days, I look into ways how we can reclaim our minds. So, as I was saying, Central to the constructions cluttering, preoccupying our mind is the construction of who we think we are. Indeed, we go through life as if our primary business in life were to become the character we have chosen to be. And then, having become this character, having impersonated this character, to endow this character with a stability so that it will endure in the midst of the prevailing impermanence. Quite, quite, quite I would say, an impossible task, you know. 
I mean, sure, we talk about, with, with great feeling, about Diane Wolkstein dying. I did. But, but we'll all die. But we'll live as if this is a no-no. We, we invest tremendous effort in trying to counter the prevailing impermanence. Yet, yet there's no chance really that we can succeed. How can we create for ourselves an identity endowed with permanence, that's real of course, in the midst of an impermanent world? Surely there's a contradiction there. And, but we keep trying. How? Let me go over just as a sample of the many ways, ways how we try. So, so it's concrete, not a theory. One way we try is through imagery. As when we relentlessly go around with our cell phone cameras trying to freeze our presence in the world. In earlier times this was done primarily by having our portrait taken, right? Paint, uh, painted, sorry, not taken, painted. Or by using effigies or any sort of monument to in immortalize the image of ourselves. Remember the pharaohs in Egypt? They had their bodies embalmed, then embedded in a sculpted likeness. And all this entombed in a massive pyramid. By golly. I mean, they tried hard. Absolutely. <laughs> Not that we have discontinued, totally discontinued this practice of enshrining ourselves in monument. No? All you have to do is uh, go to Manhattan, as I did, we did uh, a few weeks ago, and there were the Trump Towers, you know. But of course, Mr. Trump, he knows that those monuments are not as powerful as the pyramids used to be. So he's not satisfied with that. What does he do? He, he offers also a TV show, right, called The Celebrity Apprentice, where, where he celebrates others in order to celebrate himself. Fair enough. But somehow, somehow it works. I mean, to get mentioned in this retreat, that's quite an honor. <laughs> well, so, Donald Trump uses language too as, as a support to perpetrate himself, the TV show. And indeed, language Language is very essential for that. Even before we open our mouth 
to talk to others. We spend so much time and energy and attention talking to ourselves. And in this talking to ourselves, the fabrication of who I am plays a central role. Check it out next time you talk to yourself. And of course it does. Likewise in any conversation we have with others. Because don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk. I'm only asking that we be aware of our intentions when doing so. Do I formulate my thoughts as a contribution to myself and others? Or do I so primarily to enhance my own status? More concretely, am I giving now this Dharma talk because I have something beneficial to say? Or do I do so primarily to enhance my role as the teacher? Likewise in any conversation, do I engage in it to contribute something useful and pertinent? Or do I engage in that conversation primarily in order to define and redefine myself? And then, if we wish to solidify our talk, we put it in writing. It's a little more stable. Or going a step further, we consign it to the printed media. I know all about this. I was in that business too. And I still hold copies of the books I have written and the reprints of the articles I've published, both as a scientist, which I used to be, and as a meditation teacher. They are in the shelves of my study at home, together with a thick binder containing copies of everything that has been published about me during my long life. It's true that of course, it makes sense to continue to have access to those materials. But the issue is, how do I relate to them? And I, I do question myself often. Do I keep them because of the potential usefulness? Or do I do so just because they contribute to permit, perpetuate me in writing? Now, of course, all this writing is trivial compared with uh, what's in vogue today, which is a digital space, a virtual space. The infinite ways in, in which we can perpetuate ourselves in that space. It's true, it doesn't compete with the pyramids in sturdiness, but has an uncanny ability to pluck out of the flow of time 
in images and in language, each and every instant of our lives that we might wish to capture and store. And it also has this uncanny ability to create a pseudo-reality out of the blue. You know, I'm fascinated going to these sites where you can create an avatar of yourself. They call it avatar. Um, a character that impersonates you. The, uh, this avatar can assume whatever features and attire you wish. doesn't have to have your, your my face um, or dress or even my sex. Whatever. It will say and act out whatever you program it to say and act out. And so we, we are not only able to preserve ourselves in the virtual space in, in this guise, but we can invent a personality for our substitute there. And often there's a possibility of choreographic the actions. Indeed, in daily life, we also define ourselves not just by language, not just by looks and dress or whatever, but also by the way we act. I, I'm very intrigued because I've, I've caught myself quite often now and I realize it's routine. Choreographing, meticulously choreographing, choreographing repetitive patterns of activities. That surely can be shortcuts for efficiency, but I think there's more to, the, to them than that. Like, when I find myself following a very strict routine on washing the dishes. Sure, it's convenient to do that. But, but the emphasis that I put in that, I suspect has something to do with the continuity of myself. Continuity of my identity. I am the guy who washes the dishes in a certain way. You notice Raquel smiling because she's caught me in that too. <laughs> the reverse is also true. Having relies, relied on routines to construct a sense of self, a discontinuity in those routines opens the way to a discontinuity in our sense of self. Let me illustrate it with a dramatic and extreme instance of that, which is the story 
of Jacinta Saldana. Don't know whether you remember. Her. She was in the news recently. She was a head nurse in the London hospital where Kate, the Duchess of Cambridge, was hospi hospitalized last December. Kate was suffering from morning sickness as a result of her pregnancy. Nothing critical. She, she came out okay. But it made big headlines around the world because it concerned the potential heir to the British throne. And supposedly that's a very important thing. At some point, Nurse Saldana received a phone call from a journalist, actually an Australian journalist it was, who pretended to be the Queen of England and asked about Kate's condition. Saldana, instead of verifying the legitimacy of the call, passed it on to somebody else. It's a no big deal, right? But she should have checked it out, make sure it was a valid call. Not having done that, she created a breach of the pri privacy of her royal patient. When Saldana realized what she had done, she was horrified. So much so that she concluded that she could not go on living side by side, side with such a hideous image of herself. And as perhaps you remember, she took her own life. What a waste. In the end, all this construction of self through imagery, through language, through behavior, feeds into a system of grading ourselves, like Nurse Saldana did. And the grade we get becomes a definition of who we are. This, of course, I mean, this is a common sort of thing. That's what our educational system does, isn't it? The system that cares less and less about educating our youth and more and more about evaluating students and indirectly teachers through the use of standardized tests. Again, what a waste. The Buddha, of course, she didn't have to deal with these modern things of grades in school and standardized tests, but she, he went to the root of the problem anyway in his teaching about the eight worldly conditions. That's what the teaching is called. This teaching is about four criteria, each defined by two alternatives, 
hence there are eight conditions, which were habitually used to evaluate ourselves. These four criteria are the polarities, actually. Profit and loss, success and failure, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. And the Buddha said, and I quote, the world revolves about these eight worldly conditions. Meaning that the ordinary uninstructed person is compulsively obsessed about them. Ordinary uninstructed is a translation of what the Buddha says. That is, we, the ordinary uninstructed we, relentlessly, relentlessly use these four criteria to grade ourselves, to puff ourselves up, or put ourselves down. And in the process, we disregard the richness of what we really are, and only focus on this particular grading system, if you Check it out. See if you haven't caught your, found yourself caught over and over again in the struggle to attain profit, success, praise, and pleasure. As if this is what life is all about. Well, not necessarily all four, but some, some of us would be leaning in the direction of one, others in the direction of the other. But the, the, the world is encouraging that. Just last Sunday, I was skimming over the TV programs trying to find a, a movie I wanted to watch. And, and in the process, I picked up a fascinating snippet of conversation. I didn't stay with that movie, by the way. <laughs> it was um, a mother telling her young daughter the following, and I quote, Life is a battlefield. You have to fight for what you want. She could have said, you have to fight for profit, success, praise, or pleasure. Whatever, or the equivalent. Battlefield. See, in battlefield, there's no nuances. You boom, 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 boom. You don't wait and think. You attack. It makes little difference for our obsessiveness whether it is focused on a major issue like a significant health issue where we would perhaps be justified in focusing on it, 
or on something totally trivial like uh, what he or she said or didn't say to us. All that matters is that in the pursuit of the various alternatives offered by the eight worldly conditions, we enhance our ego or put our ego down. What a way to live. Now, the time has come to begin to tackle the really crucial question here. What is the way out of getting caught in the eight worldly conditions? And the answer, if we have to give it very briefly, although I'll expand on that, is the practice, is the path. The so-called noble path laid down by the teachings of the Buddha. That's certainly why he talks about the eight worldly conditions, because he offers a way out. Say we stumble in a situation that we perceive as a failure. What do we do? I like the advice offered by a Zen teacher called Norman Fisher. He says, and I quote, turn all mishaps into the path. And he explains that in an article that I'll read you a paragraph from. Although trying to avoid difficulty may be natural and understandable, it actually doesn't work. We think it makes sense to protect ourselves from pain, but our self-protection ends up causing us deeper pain. We think we have to hold on to what we have, but our very holding on causes us to lose what we have. We are attached to what we like and try to avoid what we don't like. But we can't keep an attractive object and we can't avoid the unwanted object. I mean, let me continue to read. So, counter counterintuitive though it may be avoiding life's difficulty is actually not the path of least resistance it's a dangerous way to live if you want to have a full and happy life in good times and bad you have to get used to the idea that facing misfortune squarely is better than trying to escape from it. This is not a matter of grimly focusing on life's difficulty. It's simply the smoothest possible approach to happiness. Of course, when we can't prevent difficulty, we do it. 
the world may be upside down, but we still have to live in this upside down world. And we have to be practical on its terms. The teaching on transforming bad circumstances into the path doesn't deny that. What it addresses is the underlying attitude of anxiety, fear, and narrow-mindedness that makes our lives unhappy, fearful, and small. In this way, then, and that's what Norman Fisher means, the arena of the eight worldly conditions Instead of being a trap where we get relentlessly attached to profit, success, praise, and pleasure, and repelled by loss, failure, blame, and pain, pain becomes a teaching ground for learning to be free. Learning to be free not by becoming indifferent to the polarities of the eight worldly conditions, not by closing our eyes and pretending that they're not happening, but by understanding the need to remain unattached to them. Am I saying this right? Unattached, yet not indifferent? Yeah, yeah, I am. The true alternative to attachment is not indifference, but detachment. And I'll talk much more about this in tomorrow's talk. As for today's talk, let me conclude by emphasizing that for all the disadvantages of the crowded mind, and certainly I've listed them, I think, quite extensively, more often than not, is the mind we are inhabiting. And so, we need to use that mind as a stepping stone towards the free and empty mind. To say this in another way. Every time we catch ourselves in the act of fabricating ourselves, we are offering opportunity to see ourselves do it, that is, fabricating, and thus an opportunity to stop performing this deception, an opportunity to turn the mishap into the path. It's important that you come to realize this, not because a Zen teacher, Norman Fisher, has said it. Not because this teacher here, sitting in this podium, is saying it. But because your own mind, having become concentrated and capable of penetrating reality, has discovered this by itself. So, that's what we are here for. To explore the penetration of the real 
during this retreat. Let's sit for a minute or so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.